Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. This is Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we hear excerpts from a panel discussion focusing on our long-term fiscal and economic challenges at the Tippy College of Business here at the University of Iowa. Our experts include Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who focused on the current debt limit fight in Congress, how to increase federal revenue, and how we might prevent the Social Security Trust Fund from going insolvent, resulting in major cuts to benefits for seniors. We also heard from University of Iowa Tippy College of Business economics professor Ann Villamil, who focused on short and long-term economic challenges facing our country. Rounding out the panel is University of Iowa Tippy College accounting professor Ramji Balakrishnan, who focuses much of his research on how to reduce health care costs, which is an enormous part of the federal budget. Our moderator for the forum was John Lohman, the founder and publisher of the Corridor Business Journal, a regional economic and business media publication. We're going to start with Anne. So Anne, help us uh, understand the, the short-term and long-term economic challenges as a country and what things do we need to pay attention to and is there anything that's uh, bubbling up that you have your um, attention on right now? Uh, in the short term, clearly inflation and financial stability. So inflation has been building for a while. The banking crisis is an unwelcome recent uh, development, which appears to be getting under control. Uh, the re a recession continues to be an open question. Uh, we talk about it. It hasn't happened yet. We are not in a recession. Um, probably won't see one for the next uh, few months at least. Uh, but there are concerns about a recession or so-called soft landing. Uh, and then the labor market continues to be a source of interest, uh, a source of interest in the sense that the unemployment rate is 3.6%, which is historically low, but labor force participation, that is people who are in the labor force, uh, has not fully recovered from the COVID crisis. And that's concerning because it affects uh, firms' profitability and, and our ability to produce GDP. In the long run, uh, and that's why we're here today, there are very serious concerns about fiscal policy, meaning taxes and spending, the deficit and the debt, uh, and the so-called debt ceiling. And I think we'll talk about those things. As Phil showed, there are serious concerns about demographics, fewer workers, uh, so less people to produce things, uh, but more retired and older people. And that involves important government programs like Social Security and healthcare. And in the long run, an area that is always of concern is economic growth. If we can continue to grow as an economy, it's not going to solve these problems. We need to make some difficult choices, but it will make uh, life much easier. And of course, part of growth is innovation. 
Great. Thank you. You touched on a, a, a number of uh, items there. We'll, we'll dig into those a little bit later. But Steve, I want to go to you. Uh, the big fight in Congress right now, once again, we have a divided government and a dispute between the president and at least one of the congressional chambers over raising the debt limit. You were actually working in Congress, if I'm not mistaken, the last time the U.S. came close to defaulting on its debt payment. Can you, can you break down what the fight is all about? Who are the major players? What do they want? And what is at stake in this fight? And and should we even have a debt limit at all? So there's a handful of questions there. So, Steve, I'm going to turn it over to you. I'll start with the last question. Why do we have a debt limit? And, you know, it actually goes back to the Constitution, which gives Congress the power to raise taxes, appropriate money. And it also, Constitution gives Congress the authority to borrow money on, on the credit of the United States. And originally, Congress would authorize the Treasury Department to borrow specific amounts of money for specific projects. So you go back to, you know, sort of the late, you know, 1800s or so, early 1900s. And it was a, a, a power that Congress sort of held over the Treasury Department to say, you know, we're only going to let you borrow as much as we tell you and only for the things that we tell you. Obviously, as the government got bigger, that became more cumbersome. And so in the late 1930s, Congress simply said, okay, look, we're going we're gonna to sort of give you a free reign. We're going to put a limit on the total amount that can be borrowed, and you can decide when and where and how much to borrow and for what purposes uh, with more discretion, but we're going to maintain a leash uh, on the total amount of borrowing by, by putting a limit on it. And obviously, over the years, the limit has gone up. And you know, one way to think about it is sort of like a, an overdraft protection uh, on your checking account. In other words, if you're making deposits and withdrawals, it's like the government raising taxes and, and spending money. And if you start writing checks faster than you make deposits, you're going to overdraft, you know, you're going to have your account's going to get overdrawn. And banks often will offer overdraft protection. They say, well, we'll essentially give you a loan uh, to cover any checks that you, you know, would, would otherwise overdraw. But the bank is only going <laughs> to give you a certain amount of overdraft protection. They're not, it's not unlimited. And so Congress, in, in the case of the debt limit, is saying, well, Treasury can borrow money, but it's not unlimited. We're going we're gonna to have a limit. And we now, as of, as of, of uh, the beginning of this year, we are at the limit, about $31.4 trillion. And uh, the, sec uh, the uh, Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, had sent a letter to Congress back in January saying that we're now at the limit and the Treasury Department is going to begin engaging in what are known as extraordinary measures uh, and they're really not extraordinary to the extent that we've been doing these now for, for many decades. And essentially what, what happens is it allows the Treasury Department to continue borrowing even though we're at the debt limit. And it's, it's a sort of an accounting trick because the way to think about it is there's $31 trillion in total debt. About $25 trillion of that is held by uh, the public, you know, banks and ins insurance funds and pension funds. And, you know, so public pe the people in the public, as well as foreign countries that lend money that the government borrows, uh, that's about 25 trillion. The other part of that, though, is about close to 7 trillion. And that is money that essentially the government borrows from itself. And, and, and I'll explain that. Essentially, there are the Social Security Trust Fund, the Medicare Trust Fund, and there are actually dozens of other, the Highway Trust Fund, the leaking underground storage tank trust fund. There are literally dozens of trust funds in the federal government. And whenever these trust funds collect more receipts than they spend, 
they invest the surplus in government bonds. And so the bonds that are held by all the trust funds are also counted toward the debt limit. There is a procedure that's authorized by law that when you reach the debt limit, the, uh, the Treasury Secretary has the ability to s- essentially, um, they, they call it disinvesting. A better way to think about it is they, they simply erase part of the bonds held by the civil service retirement system and the federal employee thrift savings plan. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of two, two or $300 billion that they essentially can pretend no longer exists temporarily. And then they can go out and borrow an equivalent amount from the public. Uh, and so they can keep going. And, and the secretary said, well, you know, that may get us until the end of June. It could get us as far as September because, you know, the, the cash flow of the government receipts and outlays are very unpredictable and it varies, you know, uh, it varies widely from month to month. And so, you know, the idea is that we have a temporary uh, solution to avoid exceeding the debt limit and it may or may not get us past, you know, July or September. But when that happens, you know, the idea is that the government essentially is unable to pay its bills. And so the president and the Congress are now debating amongst themselves saying, you know, we need to raise this debt limit. We don't want to uh, jeopardize the, the government's credit rating. And of course, you know, it, it's interesting in watching this over the years, whenever there's a Republican in the White House, most of the Republicans will vote to raise the debt limit. And most of the Democrats will vote against raising the debt limit. When there's a Democrat in the White House, the reverse is true. The Republicans all mostly vote no, and the Democrats all mostly vote yes. And it's sort of like, you don't want to be responsible for the president of your party having defaulted on the debt. And so you're seeing that play out now. I mean, we raised the debt limit a couple of times when President Trump was in office, uh, the Republicans all mostly voted for it. Now that President Biden's in office, the Republicans say, oh, no, no, we can't do this. And so it's it's largely politics and it's unfortunate. But at the same time, what is what you've seen happen in the past is this is a point of leverage where, you know, if the government is at some deadline, whether it's passing all the appropriation bills by the beginning of the, the fiscal year, whether it's raising the debt limit, it creates an inflection point or a pressure point. So when you're in, in Congress and you're looking for political leverage and how to you know, gain something that you might not otherwise be able to do, both of the parties have used the debt limit um, as a vehicle to pass other types of legislation. Sometimes they insist on spending cuts. You know, you go back to the 1980s, there was a law called Graham-Rudman that was supposed to help balance the budget. In fact, if you go back far enough to 1972, there was a major expansion in the Social Security program. It was attached to a debt limit bill in the Senate. So, I mean, there have been related and unrelated bills that have been used, uh, or the, the debt limit has been used as a vehicle, a legislative vehicle to pass unrelated legislation. And so you're seeing that play out again this 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 year. Uh, and, and the Republicans in Congress and the, and the White House are basically, you know, trying to get, you know, and uh, trying to get their point across that, you know, we don't want to we don't want to default on the government's debt. So let's pass a clean debt limit. That's the president's position. And the Congress is saying, well, we don't want to default either, but we can't just keep piling up the debt year after year after year. We need to make some effort to begin to reduce the debt and the deficit. And we're going to use the debt limit as leverage to try to make that happen. And that's what you're going to see playing out over the next few months. I'm going to stay on this topic for a second. And Anne, I'm going to direct this to you. And Steve, you might want to weigh in on it after she finishes. But, you know, what's the worst case scenario if the debt ceiling isn't increased? And, and what what is the likelihood of that actually happening? So the worst case is very serious. It could be a global financial crisis. It's not just the United States. The United States 
uh, dollar in the United States itself underpins the world economy. So, so the stakes are very, very high here. Uh, I hope that it is that it will not happen, but it it really does, and I and I don't foresee it happening. But it really does concern me that we would even discuss such a thing. Um, it, you know, I understand the bargaining part of it, but uh, you know, the U.S. needs to be a good steward not only of its own economy but of the world economy. But I think. Steve, you've been through this in 2000, uh, 2011, I guess. I mean, we've been here before, so that's why we will get out of this. But the U.S. did threaten to default. Um, we were two days away from it, and it led to a downgrading of U.S. credit. Uh, that's not something that should happen, and we don't want that to happen when we particularly have these high interest expenses. Yeah, I mean, I, I think cooler heads will ultimately prevail, and we we won't <laughs> we won't default on our debt, which I agree with you would be a, a, a terrible thing to happen. I mean, you know, it, you know, if if the credit markets, financial markets, lose faith in the in the federal you know government securities, you know, you would see what happened you know in Greece back in in the uh, in the two, in the mid two thousands. Um, you know, interest rates would spike, and when you have thirty one trillion dollars in debt. Every one percentage point increase in the interest rate adds $300 billion in annual interest costs. Ramji, I'm going to go to you next. Um, it is estimated that nearly 33 cents of every dollar the federal government spends is on health care, both on insuring millions of federal employees and military veterans care, but also through programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, and the state-based health care exchanges as part of the Affordable Care Act. So growing healthcare costs are huge contributors to our national debt. You do a lot of work on the cost of healthcare. Are there ways that we can slow the growth of healthcare spending or anything else, maybe even to lower healthcare costs? And is there any low-hanging fruit that we should take a look at right away? You are absolutely correct that uh, managing the growth in healthcare cost is a must-do item to attain any sense of fiscal responsibility going forward. At the federal level, we are spending roughly 10%, 9.5% of GDP on healthcare cost. Uh, what this means is that by 2028, uh, like you said, 33% of our non-interest spending will be on healthcare. And if we do nothing, by 2040, it will be 40% of non-interest-based spending. And what that means is that there is no money left for anything else. So the discretionary portion that Phil was talking about, is going to get completely squeezed out. So there is no money for education, for transportation, for other things. So, so this, this is controlling healthcare costs is a very, very important and a relevant and a clear problem that we confront. Sadly, there are no easy or clear answers on how we might rein this in. Uh, in fact, I believe that we are actually underestimating the growth of the problem. I think the problem is bigger than what I just described uh, because there is a tremendous amount of wage pressure in the healthcare system that we are not accounting for. Our hospitals today are paying bonuses of $30,000 to hire a new nurse, just a signing bonus, and we cannot get enough surgical technicians and medical technicians and things like that. So, so the, the outlook is not good. So what can we do? There are basically three things that, uh, that people have kind of talked about. 
Uh, one is to increase the efficiency of the system. Let's not spend more money, but spend the money that we are spending and get more value from it. This is very appealing as an option because it kind of implies that we just squeeze the waste out of the system. However, while this may reduce overall healthcare costs, even if it is feasible, it's not going to reduce the federal deficit because Medicare is already the lowest tier reimbursement. If you talk to hospital people, they will tell you that Medicare patients pay the least in terms uh, of other patients for other procedures. So it's not even clear that A, we can do this, and even if we can do this, that it's going to help reduce the federal deficit. So this is an avenue that sounds very nice, but it's not very realistic in my view. The second lever that we can pull is to reduce the scope of services that we provide. That is, we do less. Uh, this can take the form in the form of age limitations for services, income limitations for services, what diseases are covered, the cap on reimbursements. There are a number of different ways in which we can kind of do this. Uh, and in this option, we spend less because we do less. But, and I'm going to use a really bad word here, rationing. This is something that is politically extremely difficult to kind of get through. Uh, and there are attendant ethical implications. There is going to be disproportionate impact on different populations. So doing that balancing act, I think is going to be an incredibly difficult political challenge particularly given our divided and polarized uh, government today. The third option is to kind of go to the root of the problem and change the structure of the system, if you will. So, in, so let's start with small changes. Some of the small changes that we can do, and the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed has taken some of these steps, is to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, today, prescription drugs, the same drug within the U.S. is two to three times, and some estimates are 3.5 times what it costs outside the country. So, And a new prescription drug today, the average, the median drug is $200,000 per year per patient. So, so it's an enormous amount of money that we are spending on this. But if we can negotiate as a federal government directly with Medicare, we can rein in this growth to a considerable degree. And I think there is room to kind of gain some money here. But this is not the only solution that we can pursue because prescription costs are only 10%. Drug costs are only 10% of the total. And that's not going to be enough. Even if I can reduce it by 50%, it's going to only give us just a little bit. Okay, so what else can we do? The second thing that is, again, very popularly talked about is we need to reduce administration cost because this is dead weight loss. It's not directly going to patient care. Let's kind of squeeze that out. And there is some data to support this. Medicare costs about 1.5% in terms of admin cost. Uh, private health insurance is about 15% on average. The estimates are varying. Low end is 12%, high end is about 20%, so let's call it 15%. Uh, but these are not apples to apples comparisons. And even if we go to a single payer system and are able to do this, 
you're thinking maybe a couple of hundred billion dollars, which is real money. I mean, trust me, it is, it is very serious money, but it is just a dent on the overall problem. Ultimately, and this is just my personal belief, uh, this is we need to change the structure of the system. We are now in what I call a cure-based kind of a healthcare delivery mode, and we need to move to a prevention-based healthcare delivery mode. Fixing something at the front end may cost us only a couple of hundred dollars, but if you let it go and fix it after it has become a full-blown disease, it's going to cost us lots, thousands and thousands of dollars. So how do we kind of move towards a system that's more focused on prevention? That, I think, is a conversation that we absolutely must have if we are to make a dent into this federal spending. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director, Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from our panel discussion in Iowa, addressing America's long-term fiscal and economic challenges after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Concord Coalition Communications Director, Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. We're hearing excerpts today from a panel discussion we held at the University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business, looking at America's major fiscal and economic challenges. The next question from panel moderator John Lohman was for Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Steve, I want to go to you. So one of the big challenges facing our our economy and our federal budget is this major demographic shift we are in the middle of. We have a rapidly growing population of seniors who are drawing benefits from Social Security and Medicare and not enough working age population paying into the system. Both programs are facing insolvency in their trust funds. In a State of the Union address recently, President Biden got all of Congress to stand up for seniors and not to cut Social Security and Medicare. And you worked at the Social Security Administration, and you know this program very well. Can you give us a snapshot of where we are with Social Security? How close are we to insolvency, and why is that happening? And what is at stake for seniors if we don't fix it? The problem is largely demographic. I mean, Americans are living longer and having fewer kids. I mean, if you go back to to 1935, when Social Security was enacted, uh, life expectancy for men who who turned 65 in 1935, uh, they could expect to live about another 12 years, and women could could expect to live about another 13 years. Since that time, we've added early retirement. So instead of retiring at 65 and living another 10 or 12 years, we now can retire at age 62. So we've added three years on the front end, and people are now, men are living about 17 years on average from age 65 and about 20 years for women. So from, from that perspective, we've increased the length of time that people spend in retirement or collecting benefits in retirement by almost 50%. So, you know, clearly the, the elderly population is growing. They can retire early and collect benefits for longer. In addition to that, though, since the, you know, the mid-60s when the baby boom ended, you know, fertility rates have been sort of bouncing up and down, and they've been in the neighborhood of basically two births per woman, which is replacement rate. But since 2007, uh, birth rates have been on a steady, almost consistent decline. Uh, Fertility rates are now around 1.65. And obviously, were that rate to continue, um, you know, that's below replacement rate. So absent immigration, 
you know, we would have a declining aging population where there were, you know, a, a huge shift in, in terms of the population structure, the age structure of the population. And to, to sort of put that in perspective, so the average social security benefit is about 40% of the average wage. So if you take the average benefit divided by the average wage, it's about 40%. If you have three workers for every beneficiary, you can pay that 40% benefit with a tax of about 13%. So the tax currently in, in current law for social security is 12%, 12.4. So basically that's in balance. You got a 12% tax, 13% cost. But as the population ages, that ratio of three to one goes to two to one. So now when you divide that 40% benefit by two workers instead of three, you now have a cost of almost 20%. So, you know, you can tell the problem is if you're not going to raise the payroll tax to 20%, you're not going to, you know, delay the retirement age, you're not going to reduce benefits somehow, you know, you, you can't make the math add up. And that's the situation we face today. The, uh, the latest trustees report uh, from last year, although I think the new one is coming out uh, very soon, maybe even this week. Uh, but the last trustees report suggested that the Social Security Trust Fund would be insolvent somewhere around 2034, um, 2035, I believe. And what that, of course, means is that the, the, the system essentially is collecting payroll taxes and paying benefits, but there's a deficit. They're drawing down the trust fund. Once the trust fund is exhausted, they will only have taxes coming in to pay the benefits. And of course, there won't be enough taxes to pay the benefits. And so you're looking at about a 20% across the board benefit cut. And so that's the prospect that we face. And so, you know, when, when the president and the Congress all stand up and say, oh, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna touch Social Security and Medicare. Well, if they don't touch Social Security and Medicare, um, the trust funds are gonna become insolvent and benefits will be cut automatically unless Congress and the president agree to do something. Question from the audience. Uh, the, the money supply in the U.S. has been increasing tremendously since 2008. Will the Fed ever be able to c control infl inflation? And do you want to tackle that one? We've had uh, huge increases in the money base and, and the supply, but uh, the Fed is controlling inflation. Inflation is a problem. Uh, it, it, the Fed would like to keep inflation, as most central banks, at about 2%. Uh, it got up to about 9%, which is unacceptable in the United States. Uh, it is already coming down. It does look like we have turned uh, a corner on inflation, but the Fed is going meeting to meeting. It has Federal Open Market Committee meetings um, roughly eight times a year. That's when it sets um, its policy rate and is also running down a big balance sheet. And so that's why the Fed, that's why interest rates have been going up, which have been painful in the economy. Uh, they're painful for the government, as we saw with this big outstanding debt. They're painful for firms who need to borrow capital. They're certainly painful for people who want to get new mortgages. Uh, but the Fed is taking decisive action to, to get inflation down. And I'm actually confident that the Fed will get inflation down. Uh, the question is how quickly and with how much pain. So the, um, the, the, its key policy rate that it looks at, it's called the PCE, and that's already down. The core is down to about four and a half percent. So that's not as bad as, um, the CPI number that we often see. Uh, and there's a question, will we go to two percent? You know, will they say if we're at two and a half, is that okay? 
Uh, my guess is they probably will. But the Fed is making progress, but it is painful in the form of interest rates. Ramji or Steve, anything you want to add there? Uh, no, thank you. Steve? <clears throat> You're mute. mute. No, no I, I, I'm good. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so, Steve, I want to go back to you on, on the Social Security fixes that have been discussed. You know, what combination of methods do we need in order to ensure that the trust fund is solvent for many years and benefits are available to seniors? And I wonder if you can talk about this in the context of, of some of the things that are happening uh, in France. Uh, there was some protests in France with the uh, the, the president trying to increase the, the wage of or the ages of pension getters in, in France from 62 to 64. Uh, so can you uh, talk about Social Security fixes in that light? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, the U.S. Social Security system, people talk about the normal retirement age. And as, as folks may be aware, back in 1983, um, we raised the retirement age from 65 to 66 to 67. But we did that very slowly and gradually over time with lots of advance notice. So, for example, in 1983, when the retirement age was 65, we said we're going to raise it beginning in the year 2000, and we're going to finish raising it in the year 2022. So, in other words, in fact, just this past year, did we finish raising the retirement age to 67 for people who turned age 62 in the year 2022. So we gave people lots of advance notice, plenty of time to prepare and think about it. And the other thing we didn't do is we didn't raise the early retirement age. So even though the normal retirement age went from 65 to 67, you can still retire at 62. It's just that you get a what they call an actuarial reduction, meaning that you get a smaller benefit so that the extra years that you collect benefits are supposed to make up for it. So if you collect a big benefit from 67 till you die, as opposed to a slightly smaller benefit from 62 to 67, and then when you die. So that's that reduction is supposed to make up with the additional number of years. Apparently what France is doing is they're raising their 62 early retirement age to 64. And, you know, politically they might've been smarter and, and had they done what we did was to say, no, you can still retire at 62 it's just that we're going to give you an actuarial reduction and we're going to phase it in over time. Now, as I understand it, they are going to wait until the year 2030 to phase in the increased age 64. But that's clearly not the same advance notice that, that the U.S. gave back in, in the 1980s. But, yeah, I mean, you know, as long as people are, are, are living longer, there's always going to be the, 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 the desire and the, and the, the trade-off of saying, you know, if people are going to collect benefits longer, if we're not going to keep raising taxes, there has to be some adjustment to the retirement age. And that tended to be one of the most popular solutions. I mean, if you look back over the past decades, there was sort of a bipartisan consensus that we're going to probably raise the taxes, payroll taxes a little bit. We're going to raise the retirement age a little bit. And it's going to be a mix of those two. But unfortunately, what's happened in the last few years is it's become very politicized. And now, now it's sort of like the Republicans are saying, well, we don't want to raise anybody's taxes. And the Democrats are saying, well, we don't want to cut anybody's benefits. And in fact, we should be raising benefits. And so you, you've almost created this no-win scenario where 
the Republicans and the Democrats don't seem to have any common ground. I mean, the only glimmer of hope is, you know, President Biden keeps saying, well, we're going to raise the top. Uh, the payroll tax only goes up to 160,000. So you pay taxes on your first 160,000 wages. And if you make above that, the payroll tax doesn't apply. And there's been a lot of discussion to say, well, let's just take the cap off the, the, the tax, um, the taxable maximum 160,000. Let's raise that. Or I think as, as one proposal would be, because Biden said, I don't want to raise taxes on anybody making under 400,000. So you could set the new cap at 400,000 and above. And because the 160 is indexed, eventually those two would meet. And so you'd be taxing all the wages, but that only solves about 60% of the problem. So if you look at the long run, what's the shortfall? That that taxing everybody's wages only gets you about 60% of the problem. So you still have to deal with the other 40%, raising the retirement age or doing something. And just, there's just no easy solution. And we've waited so long. I mean, had we done something you know, 10 or 20 years ago, raising the retirement age or changing the indexing of benefits so that they grew slower. I mean, one of the things people don't realize is Social Security benefits are actually indexed to wages. Everybody's familiar with the COLA. Once you retire, you get your cost of living, and that's based on inflation. But the initial benefit calculation in the year that you retire, your benefits are actually based on not only your wages, but the average wage in the economy, and they index your benefit so that benefits grow from one generation to the next at the rate of wage growth. If we were to have changed that formula, for example, from wages back to prices, um, you know, we could we could essentially grow our way out of the problem by having faster economic growth. But the way it is now, benefits are indexed to wages. So the faster the economy grows, the faster benefits grow. So you have this sort of situation where you can't simply say, well, we're going to grow our way out of out of the Social Security problem. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from our panel at the University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business, looking at America's fiscal and economic challenges after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. This week, we are hearing excerpts from a panel discussion at the University of Iowa Tippie College of Business, looking at short and long-term fiscal and economic challenges in the U.S. Our panelists include Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, plus a pair of economists from the University of Iowa. Ramji Balakrishnan, who teaches accounting and focuses much of his research on lowering health care costs, and economics professor Ann Villamil who focused her presentation on short and long-term challenges to economic growth in this country. Our moderator was John Lohman, the founder and publisher of the regional Corridor Business Journal. Ramji, I'm going to go back to you. We, you know, we just were talking about the, the challenges of dealing with Social Security. Uh, what about managing practical challenges to managing health care costs? And, and a couple of questions in there. Did Obamacare help or hurt the economics of health care? What have we learned about the recent healthcare crisis with Britain's National Health Service and any relevance to that crisis over in Britain here in the U.S.? In terms of practical challenges, healthcare is a fairly unusual kind of a good in the sense of uh, this is uh, stuff that we buy and we use without knowing what the price is going to be. We get the price uh, breakdown two and three months later. Uh, and we have no idea what is it that we want, but it is immensely critical to us. 
So, so, so healthcare is not something that we can use the usual techniques to try and control cost, particularly when it comes to hospital cost and physician costs and things like that. Uh, there are two fundamental problems that kind of get in the way. The first is measurement. Uh, I mean, I'm an accountant, so, so I tend to think in fairly uh, kind of concrete terms. Even figuring out what things cost is an incredibly difficult challenge in healthcare. Uh, nobody in a hospital can tell you what a knee replacement cost because it varies across hospitals, varies across individual surgeons within the hospital, depends upon the patient. So we just make a guess as to what things cost. So understanding that cost and managing it is incredibly difficult. More important, there are very conflicting incentives. The doctors who make decisions that actually decide what the cost is going to be, they have no incentives to try and reduce the cost. Their focus is on patient care, and that's where I think we want the focus to be. And they want to provide the best possible care to every person that comes into their clinic. Whereas the hospital is saying, no, no, try and manage the cost so that we can stay under the reimbursement. The insurance company is saying a third thing altogether. The patient wants a fourth thing. The patient's family wants a fifth thing. The government wants a sixth thing. So you've got at least five or six or seven different sets of people pulling in different directions with misaligned incentives. So trying to kind of get all of them to work together, which is what needs to be done to push this down or uh, to bend the curve, as they call it, is an incredibly difficult practical thing to do. It sounds really good in theory, but in practice, I have kind of done a lot of work in this area. It is incredibly hard. Now, one solution that people have suggested is go to a single-payer system where one person or one entity controls everything, much like the NHS that you kind of talked about. And even within the NHS, achieving this kind of cost control is not that easy. And NHS or any other single-payer system is going to create lots of attendant issues in terms of us, you know, rationing for care, waiting for care. There are other complications that come into play. So healthcare cost, bottom line, is a big number. We need to manage it. But I don't think tinkering at the edges is going to do anything. This is my personal view. I think we need to kind of get to the root of the problem and try to solve it structurally by going to a prevention-based system. Great. We're going to keep things at a global level here. We, we talked a little bit about uh, France and their pension system, and then we talked a little bit about Britain and uh, their healthcare system. And I want to go to you on this next question from the audience. It says, how does the shift away from the dollar standard by BRICS, by the BRICS countries, impact the Federal Reserve's ability to monetize the national debt? So the, the, the dollar does underpin the world system. Um, about 60% of um, foreign reserves are in terms of, of the dollar. And so I think um, while there are some shifts away from the dollar, uh, it still remains certainly not the only game in town but the major player, right? Uh, so what are the alternatives to the dollar? The euro, 
the problem with uh, with the euro is that Europe is is not the United States of Europe. So the fact that we have this deep and very liquid pool uh, of of treasuries, and that's one reason why back to the debt limit, you know, even discussing defaulting on the debt, I think, is very, very damaging. The U.S. dollar is considered default free because it always has been in Europe. Uh, there are not euro bonds. The bonds are still issued at the country level. And that means that the uh, the markets are just not as deep and liquid. There are discussions about about China. China has a huge way until it um, it's it's uh, capital markets are uh, fully open and at the level of of the United States. So uh, so I think that's one reason why the dollar remains so important. And it is important that the U.S. be a good steward of its economic policy for the United States, but again, also for world stability. Great. I'm going to open this next question up to uh, the entire panel and see who wants to start with it. But it's, it's clear that some businesses, including my business, and the city and state governments really needed money from the federal government during COVID uh, to keep them, people employed, to keep businesses going. But it's also, I think, clear that more money was pumped into some of these places than was actually necessary. So I guess the first question is, do you agree with that question? And what have we learned about this, especially with regards to inflation and the budget? So who wants to take that first? Steve? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, if, if you read some of the debate between what's happened, you know, during COVID and you go back and look at what happened during the financial crisis, you know, you, you sort of had these debates where, you know, the financial, the, the argument is made that the financial crisis was worse and longer than it needed to be because the government was too timid, it took too long, it did too little. And so I think that both the Congress and the Federal Reserve took that lesson to heart. And so when it came time for COVID, they did too much, too soon, and too long. And you know, as a result, we're seeing you know, massive increases in debt and deficit, massive increases in, in the Fed, Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which has contributed to inflation. You know, I mean, you can sort of parse, you know, how much of inflation is due to, you know. COVID lockdowns, how much of it is due to the Ukrainian war, you know, obviously all of those have contributing factors, but, um, you know, th th I think there's also no question that, that the Federal Reserve kept interest rates too low for too long, and that also has contributed to inflation. And so, you know, there's this trade-off that the public policymakers face all the time, and how, that is how do you balance the desire to do good without having unintended consequences? And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, a, an almost impossible question to, to know because we can't run a counterfactual. We don't, you know, in economists, we always like to say, well, you know, all other things being equal, if you did this, this is what would happen. But, you know, all other things are never equal. And so, you know, if you look back into history or you look in, you know, into current events, it's, it's just hard to know, you know, whether we did too much or too little the last time. How much worse would it have been? How much better would it have been? Nobody knows because we can't rerun that experiment. And so when we get to the new crisis, the, the you know the COVID and, and the Ukrainian war, 
you know, did we do too much? And I think there's an argument to be made that we did. And anything there? The Fed is doing the hard work now to get inflation down, and that's raising interest rates, which is painful, and uh, running down the balance sheet. Uh, I want to add that, and it's part of why we're here today, taxes and spending cuts are going to have to occur to right the ship. Um, if, if we spent too much, then, um, then we can raise appropriate taxes. And of course, the loaded word there is appropriate taxes um, to, to basically claw that back. But that is something that we do need to do, the economy. Some of the, the, the charts that Phil showed uh, are deeply concerning, but none of the deeply concerning parts have to happen if we will make the hard choices. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. We've been listening to excerpts from a panel discussion at the University of Iowa's Tippy College of Business, looking at America's long-term fiscal and economic challenges. That's all the time we have for this week, but I encourage you to visit ConcordCoalition.org to see video of the entire panel discussion. And join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. Music